Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. The Ghostly Monks at Bilsington Priory Contributed by Mrs. Joseph Conrad and cooperated by Mrs. Sherry McNamara This true story, contributed by Mrs. Joseph Conrad, the widow of the famous author, happened in a part of Kent associated with many colorful stories of the past. Canterbury and its traditions needs no introduction or repetition, and within a thirty-mile radius the locality abounds in ghostly phenomena. At Ashford, their hauntings in an old manor house situated where the railway takes a dip as it skirts the garden wall, where the ghost of a murdered man willed that the woman he loved should discover his body, hidden in the vast space under the roof, and bring his murderer to justice. It is believed that the ghost of two brothers, both highwaymen, who lived in a cottage off the main Ashford Folkestone Road, who were ultimately hanged at Tunbridge, haunt the locality where they left their horses during their last hold-up. The brothers were caught before they could return to the coppice, which, being secret and unfrequented, resulted in the poor beast being gradually starved to death. Why the highwaymen never divulged the whereabouts of the horses remains a mystery, especially as gentlemen of the road were proverbially considerate of their mounts. As you go down the hill, road that passes Aldington Knoll, again a haunted spot, you find yourself on the lower road, skirting Romney Marsh, the home of ghosts of smugglers and preventive men. And still keeping the lower road, you will reach Bilsington, the scene of Mrs. Joseph Conrad's ghostly experience a few years ago. One late afternoon in early autumn, an especially lovely season in this wooded countryside, when Mr. and Mrs. Conrad were driving in the neighborhood, their pony cast a shoe, and Joseph Conrad looked round for some place where his wife could wait his return with the pony from the village forge. As luck would have it, the Conrads found themselves close to Bilsington Priory, part of which was then occupied by a farmer and his wife. The remainder, to all intents and purpose, was a ruin. The farmer's wife, a hospitable soul, showed Mrs. Conrad into a lofty room here by a large fire, and while she went to fetch a lamp, Mrs. Conrad settled herself in an armchair and made friends with a companionable wire-haired terrier. Although the lady with the lamp took an unaccountably long time to lighten the semi-darkness of the warm firelit room, Mrs. Conrad, glad to rest in such pleasant surroundings, did not notice her absence. Suddenly the dog beside her gave a low growl, graduating into a terrified whimper. Then, to Mrs. Conrad's amazement, the opposite wall seemed to dissolve into nothingness. The clear firelight was obscured by a kind of dust haze through which Mrs. Conrad gradually discerned the figures of a procession of monks. The ghostly returns passed slowly towards a hidden staircase, and Mrs. Conrad could plainly hear their wooden patents sounding in a kind of regular rhythm as they climbed upwards. When the last monk had disappeared, the haze lifted, the wall was once more visible, and the dog was no longer afraid. Mrs. Conrad had not indulged in the mere suspicion of a doze, 
She was not thinking of monks. She knew nothing about the history of Bilsington Priory. So, wondering greatly, she waited for the farmer's wife to come back, determined to find out what monastic tradition of the past was associated with a vision in the firelight. But the farmer's wife could not help, although she was able to corroborate Mrs. Conrad's story. Bless your heart, ma'am. We don't take any notice of those monks. Why? They be so punctual that we tell the time by their footsteps. And tis always six o'clock when they do go upstairs. Our Mrs. Conrad story has an interesting sequel. Thirty years ago, Mrs. Cherry McNamara, as a small child, used to spend the summer holidays at Bilsington Priory with her brothers and sisters when the priory was rented by a farmer and his wife named Stonebridge. I wonder whether, as old people, if they were still living there when Mrs. Conrad saw the ghosts. Mrs. McNamara told Mrs. Conrad that one evening, when they were exploring the ruins and had reached the top of the ancient spiral staircase, with one accord they turned and fled, because all of them had seen a barefoot in a sandal about to descend the steps. It, the priory, was the most attractive spot, writes Mrs. McNamara, to which I am always wanting to take my own family of five children, and I expect to be renewing the acquaintance of an artist who used to come to the priory with us for sketching expeditions. And when we acted a play in the banqueting hall, he painted the scenery. The other day, I heard from a friend living at Ashford that within the last few years, the priory had been a hotel and is now a private house. It is somewhat inaccessible, and picture postcards are difficult to obtain. The accompanying illustration, which shows the actual place where Mrs. Conrad saw the ghosts of the monks, is therefore especially interesting. I should like to express my indebtedness to Mrs. Conrad, as not only did she send me particulars of her own and Mrs. McNamara's experiences at Bilsington, but she put me in touch with Dr. Copeland of Theobald House, Rochester, whose ghostly adventure will appeal to those who admire the poems of Rupert Brooke. The Return of Rupert Brooke, contributed by Dr. A. I. Copeland, Theobald House, Rochester. Dr. Copeland's acquaintance with the supernatural happened in January 1919, after he was demobilized, when he went back to Cambridge and rented the rooms in the old vicarage, Ranchester, formerly occupied by Rupert Brooke, which by reason of his famous poem is now familiar to all poetry lovers. The sitting room at the old vicarage gave Dr. Copeland the impression of still being lived in. There was not the slightest feeling that the bright young life associated with the place had met with such sudden extinction. How well one knows the atmosphere of a man's room when he is the healthiest outdoor type, and where the aftermath of good tobacco blends with the never-to-be-forgotten smell of leather-bound books, and you appreciate the homeliness of photographs, the favorite ashtrays, and the odds and ends so characteristic of the man. Dr. Copeland was perfectly happy in the friendly, unchanged environment of Rupert Brooks' den, which possessed one especially curious feature, a false bookcase which concealed a priest's hiding place, probably dating from the Reformation. One winter evening, after Dr. Copeland had finished supper, he settled himself comfortably by the fire, reading and smoking in the soft lamplight by which Rupert Brooke had also once smoked and read. Caesar, Dr. Copeland's bulldog, was snoring on the sofa. The stillness of a frost-bound night lay over everything, 
and a bright moon riding high in the serene heavens made objects in the vicarage garden as clear as day. Suddenly Caesar woke up to the usual bulldog accompaniment of gurgles and snorts and listened intently. Dr. Copeland put down his book. Slow regular footsteps were coming round the house, making their way towards the French windows of the sitting room. The footsteps stopped. Caesar gave a non-committal growl, and Dr. Copeland jumped up and opened the windows, expecting to see his landlord, Mr. Neve, returning from a moonlight stroll. No one was visible. The garden slept under a glittering sheet of frost. There was no possibility of any person taking cover. Dr. Copeland and Caesar stood for a few moments on the path looking round them, and then went back to the warm lamplit room. Presently, in answer to Dr. Copeland's ring, Mr. Neve appeared and listened to the story of the weird footsteps. Can you explain it? asked Dr. Copeland. Mr. Neve said, We are used to these footsteps. They've happened ever since Mr. Brooke was killed. They belong to his ghost, which up to now nobody has seen. The footsteps come close to the window, but there's no one there. I hope, sir, you've not been upset, concluded Mr. Neve a little anxiously. It is highly probable that Rupert Brooke returns to the place he loved and lived in before he looked at the bright face of danger and took the great leap into the dark. How truly Rupert Brooke, and all whose youth was given to England, can say, I could not die by any nobler fate. And one recalls a verse in his poem on the old vicarage, Grantchester, written in the same room where Dr. Copeland heard his footsteps seven years later, which perhaps explains something of the reason for his return. For England's the one land I know, where men with splendid hearts may go, and Cambridgeshire of England the shire for men who understand. Some true Italian ghost stories of a haunted countryside, contributed by Signor Arno Monducci. Italian ghost stories are always interesting to lovers of the supernatural, and they are extremely difficult to get firsthand, as the Roman Catholic Church sternly discountenances non-miraculous voices and apparitions. Hence, few, if any, ghost stories are published in Italy, and the only possible way to collect psychic happenings is from people who have actually experienced them. In 1932, when I was compelled to pass 15 weary months in Bologna, I met the acquaintance of Signor Arno Monducci, who, like myself, was devoted to psychical research, and I listened in France to stories the haunted countryside on the borderland of Tuscany and Romagna. It is a lovely region, said Signor Monducci, a paradise of vineyards and olive groves, with the Apennines for background, from whence rivers and restless mountain streams flow into the valleys below. The peasants relate various legends of these haunted highways, but as you want actual experiences, I will tell you about some that happened to my relations and friends since, being a Romangola, I have family interest in that part of the world. Let me tell you first about the earthbound spirit of a priest who lived and died in the Montefone district not so many years ago, whose haunting are as persistent as they are real. One evening, a girlfriend of my sister's was passing the little cemetery when she heard a voice saying, an Ave Maria, in tones of evident distress. There was nobody in sight, and as a cemetery with its high walls and dark cypresses must have looked ghostly in the gathering twilight, Julia, who had every excuse to feel frightened, ran all the way home, always followed by the sound of the sad voice. 
Fortunately for her peace of mind, she did not see the priest, who occasionally walks in the valley, reading his breviary, and she was also spared from sharing the fate of one of my father's woodsmen. This is what happened to him. After working late in the chestnut woods, Batista came back to his cottage shortly before dawn, and when he opened the door he saw the dead priest of Montefone sitting by the stove. Knowing that the priest so well during his lifetime, he realized there could be no question of mistaken identity. So all that the poor man could find to say was, Are you not dead? The priest looked at his former parishioner, who afterwards described the ghost eyes as smoldering like red-hot charcoal. My body is buried, Batista, said the priest, but my spirit lives, condemned to expiate a mortal sin committed during my earthly life. This is my punishment. I must remain in this valley for a hundred years, finding no repose in the midday heat or any shelter when the bleak winter winds sweep through the leafless woods. Know then that time and God will give judgment and pray for me. The figure disappeared, and the trembling peasant threw himself on his bed and tried to sleep, fearful every moment lest the dark form would return. And his superstitious terror augmented to such a degree that an hour later he had a slight stroke which rendered him temporarily speechless. His condition was only discovered when some of the neighbors, wondering why Batista had not gone to work, found him in bed, vainly trying to make himself heard. Batista recovered sufficiently to tell my father what had happened, but the poor fellow developed jaundice and died eighteen days later. The ghost of the priest has been seen by many reliable witnesses, and last year, in 1931, when military maneuvers were taking place in our mountains, the priest appeared one night to a bursaliere who was passing the cemetery. Wishing to ask for some spiritual guidance, the soldier waited for the priest at a little bridge higher up the road. On came the priest, but when he reached the bridge he vanished, and the bursaliere, who usually feared nothing and nobody, took to his heels and made for his quarters, where he related his strange experience and heard that the same thing had happened to several others of his company who had taken the cemetery road after nightfall. The restless presence of the priest has caused a great deal of uneasiness in the district, so much so that the weight of excommunication was called in, as it was hoped by this means to make the priest change his locale. But excommunication availed nothing, and nothing will drive the ghost away, until it has served its sentence of a hundred years. One of the most unpleasant manifestations takes place in the forest, when peasants carrying loads of woods feel the burdens increased by the weight of an invisible man who repeats the Ave Maria inseparable from the apparition. As you prefer up-to-date hauntings, I remember a certain wooden cross which stands close to an old bridge in the Tuscan country and marks the spot where barely a dozen years ago a traveler was killed when his horse, taking fright, jumped the low parapet and fell on the rocky bed of the river below. I was told that some of the peasants had often seen the ghost of the horse and its rider, but I never imagined that I should come in contact with them and hear them for myself. This happened one night when I was coming back from a local festa with four friends, none of us thinking about ghosts or hauntings. As we approached the bridge, we heard the sound of horses' hoofs and saw in front of us a swift-moving ball of fire which disappeared close to the wooden cross. At this moment, a stifled cry of help rose from the bed of the river. It must be the ghost, we exclaimed simultaneously, 
and I wasn't at all sorry when we had crossed the bridge and left the haunted road behind us. But tell me, Signora, are you interested in animal ghosts? Because if so, I can give you a good deal of information. I said, any kind of returns appeals to me. Well, phantom dogs, or the shadows of dogs, haunt the mountains. These are quite harmless and not half so terrifying as the spectral bloodhounds of Canicio, which run in and out of the old castello when the hunt is up before morning. It is well known that stables and cow sheds on lonely estates are haunted by spirits in one form or another, and a farmhouse on a property belonging to my uncle was haunted by the ghost of an industrious old servant who used to cut up kindling wood in an outhouse, and afterward came into the kitchen where she threw the chairs about, something in the manner of a German poltergeist. A curious psychic occurrence at Centerno took place in the stables, when one usually quiet horse was often heard kicking and rearing in its stall, and my uncle at last made up his mind to investigate the cause. To his surprise, he found the animal covered with foam and its mane plated in a grotesque way. On another occasion, the shadow of a horse with a dog rider was plainly silhouetted against the white wall of the quartile, the shadow finally materializing as a horse, which galloped away in the darkness. I don't pretend to be able to offer any explanation of these things, but they are as true as the story of the tongues of fire once seen at a wedding festa near San Tedno. The bridegroom-to-be was the only son of a prosperous agriculturist. He was already experienced in the ways of love, but in one instance he had carried his trifling too far, and the betrayed girl had taken what she considered to be the easiest way out. This tragic incident did not constitute any impediment to marriage with the daughter of a neighboring farmer, and nothing unusual took place until the united families had assembled for the traditional Roma wedding banquet and dance. Suddenly, terrible blows were overheard, and a late arrival, shaking with fear, rushed into the great kitchen, announcing, The house is surrounded by flames. The guests crowded around the entrance, and sure enough, the house was encircled by a ring of flickering tongues of fire, which disappeared in a single line in the direction of the river where the unfortunate girl had drowned herself. From that day all good luck left the farm and the marriage represented the failure which it would probably have been in any case, even if the dead girl's fire curse had not been laid upon it. Shadows of the past and shadows of another world are alike thrown on this beautiful blood-stained country, and although I know you prefer true ghost stories to ghostly legends, I feel I must tell you the story of the old bridge at Vatrino, now rebuilt as the only bridge in the world having a single arch span of 1,100 feet. The old bridge was once the scene of constant fighting between representatives of the Tosignani and the Alidosi, two noble and strife-loving families living on opposite sides of the border. Their quarrels and fights were accepted as a matter of course until real trouble came when a brother of the reigning Alidosi fell in love with Laura de Tosignani, who refused to listen to his proposals, still less to see him. Becoming desperate, the young lord staged an abduction which would appeal to any modern scenario writer. One night, a picked party of the Alidosi came over the border and camped out in the wooded country adjacent to the Castello of the Tusignani. Owing to a purposely false report that the Castello was undefended, the Alidosi forced an entrance 
only to meet with such a determined resistance, accentuated by frantic ringing of the castle alarm bell, that they fled in confusion, leaving two of their number behind them. Next morning the prisoners were brought before the overlord of the district, who interrogated them, at first to no purpose. Afterwards, when they knew that their continued silence would mean a very unpleasant death, they confessed that the love raid had originated solely with the young lord of Aladosi. When this open confession became known over the border, the haughty lover sent an envoy to demand their instant return of the prisoners, saying that if this were refused, they would be taken by force. The Tosignani, enraged by this high-handed attitude, sought assistance from their neighbors, and when the Alidosi returned to the charge, headed by one of the family, they were met at the river by the Tosignani and their allies, and a desperate fight took place, a large number of soldiers being drowned in the swift-flowing waters. The young lord was saved, but after this wholesale drowning, the Alidosi decided to build a bridge where at least they could fight the Tosignani without getting wet. The old bridge admirably planned with a series of rooms on either side for attack and defense, witnessed many encounters, the peasants declare that every year towards the middle of September, a long file of shadowy men-at-arms, led by the young lord, may be seen crossing the new bridge to renew the feud with their ghostly opponents, awaiting them on the other side of the water. A not unamusing supernatural experience recently happened to an old man I knew well. A disagreeable individual, the custodian of the castle, of the Canasio, who never allows the keys of the ancient bell tower to leave his possession. This cross-grained fellow lived in a corner of the deserted castello, and one night the peasants of the district were awakened by the sound of the great bell of the Canasio, sending its brazen message of warning across the countryside. Believing the custodian to have become suddenly insane, a number of villagers made their way to the castello to the disturbing accompaniment of the alarm bell and when they arrived there they met the custodian literally foaming with rage dancing about in front of the tower demanding the saints to tell him who had dared set the bell in motion next morning the custodian still beside himself asked justice of the mayor explaining that as he invariably slept with the keys under his pillow someone must have entered the tower in order to annoy him wait and see if the disturbance happens again said the pacific mayor and sure enough three nights later the great bell rang out at midnight this was the last straw and the custodian's wrath was only appeased by the wily suggestion of the parish priest that the old lords of canasio must be great admirers of mussolini and had caused the castle bell to be rung in order to summon the descendants of their vassals to place themselves not under the jurisdiction of the canasio but under that of the new italy the ghost at the palazzo caffarelli naples miss mary boyle's experience this experience happened some years ago when miss mary boyle was traveling in italy with her mother and sister but it may be taken as authentic as miss boyle not only saw the ghost once but many times the boyles who had wintered in rome went to naples in the early spring and it seems futile to enthuse about the Italian primavera, certainly not the English lass with the delicate air who dances lightly over a carpet of bluebells and leaves her gentle kisses on the trees and hedgerows, as this spring is a glowing passionate beauty, breathing a thousand heady perfumes, garlanded with many-hued flowers, embodying in herself 
the promise of the year's later luxuriant maturity. But sentimental memories cling around springtime in Italy. I have only to close my eyes to see the Piazza di Spagna, a sea of color and fragrance, and I possess an unforgettable memory of the pinkish-purple peach blossom set against the burning blue and gold of Nunde in the Campagna. A well-meaning friend had recommended the Santa Lucia Quartier at Naples as likely to suit the boils, but they found hotel life there impossible. Santa Lucia was neither harmonious nor healthy, being the principal resort of the fishermen, and not only their loud voices but the continued presence of fish made it difficult for the boils to appreciate the freshness of morning or the sea breezes at night. This being so, they determined to take a flat and were fortunate enough to find one on the lower floor of the Palazzo Calafari on the corner of the Sihacha and the Piazza Caffarelli, close to the lovely gardens of the Villa Real. The rooms were spacious and lofty. Two of the bedrooms had the disadvantage of being passage rooms, but Mary Boyle was too young to trouble over trifles. She was delighted with her dormitory, she called it, which formed a corner, one window overlooking the piazza, the other the chiaja, and after years she described how she used to watch the tideless sea dazzling in the sunlight, silver and onyx in the moonlight. It is never night at Naples, said Mary Boyle, when varying sounds ranging from the rumbling of market carts to the twang of guitars kept her awake. Unfortunately, the street noises were accentuated owing to the heat, which made it necessary to open the windows and allow plenty of fresh air to circulate through the flat. There was a short space between Mrs. Boyle's bedroom door and that of Mary's sister, which were placed at right angles to each other in a corner of Mary's room, and every night for four months she saw the figure of a woman pass through these doors, which were always left open. The young girl was not afraid when she first saw the form in the uncertain light. Its outlines and movements registered youth. In thinking it might be her sister, she called out. But receiving no answer, she decided that she had not been heard. The figure came again. Mary paid little of any attention to its visits. There were four women besides herself in the flat. It might easily be one of them. But afterwards she gradually became attracted by the peculiar gliding movement of the unknown wanderer, while the fact that she never received any answer to the inevitable question, who's there, considerably puzzled her. One night, when the figure made its usual appearance, Mary, taking her courage in both hands, jumped out of bed and followed the figure as it went into her sister's room. It vanished on the threshold, and the mystery of its identity remained a mystery. Again and again Mary followed the form, and at last she confided her adventure to her mother, hoping to find out whether Mrs. or Miss Boyle had also seen the ghost. Her questioning was brushed aside. "'My dear Mary,' said Mrs. Boyle, "'you are talking nonsense. How could anyone possibly come night after night into your sister's bedroom without her knowledge? Your ghost is probably a reflection thrown by something outside. Don't let your mind dwell on such things,' Mary said. "'I'm not frightened, only curious.' This kind of curiosity is ill-advised, replied her mother, and please, remember not to breathe a word of this to anyone. Our Roman servants are fanciful enough in all conscience, but Neapolitans seem to be the last word in ignorant credulity. A little offended and snubbed by Mrs. Boyle's want of sympathy, Mary did not allude again to the mysterious figure. As she said, she was not frightened, and she began to think the whole thing was a freak of imagination, until she heard the well-known rustle, 
and saw her pass through the accustomed door. As the summer, even for Naples, was exceptionally hot, Mrs. Boyle changed her bedroom for one with a cooler aspect, and Mary, who had moved into her mother's room, wondered if the figure would appear to her there, to quote her own words. Yes, every night. The hour varied, as was my time for going to bed, but the visit was certain. One day, when Mary was complaining of sleeplessness to Teresa, an elderly servant, who represented a kind of fixture in the palazzo, as Donna di Facenda, to one or another of the tenants, the problem of the figure's identity was partially solved. So, the signorina can't sleep, said Teresa compassionately. Well, I've often wondered how you manage to sleep at all in this apartment. Why? For what reason? asked Mary. It isn't always so hot, and I'm getting quite accustomed to the noises outside. Ah, the signorina and her family have evidently never heard the sounds and screams which at times disturbed the other inmates of the palazzo. Perhaps she has seen? Intrigued by the possibility that Teresa knew something, and disregarding Mrs. Boyle's opinion of Neapolitan credulity, Mary burnt her boats and told Teresa all about the figure. Teresa listened attentively, crossed herself devoutly, implored the assistance of the bandana, and whispered, Signorina is the only person in the palazzo who has actually seen the ghost. It is a sad story. In the very room occupied by the signorina, a young English lady died broken-hearted for love of the then Prince of Capua. More than this, Teresa refused to disclose. Perhaps the love affair was taboo in the palazzo, and Mary Boyle, who could not speak Italian fluently and had no Italian friends, was prevented from making investigations on her own account. It was her first and last experience of the supernatural. But she never forgot the girl who died for love, and she always regretted that the true facts of the romance were lost to her.